not supposed to say this, but, well, we're friends, right? You have to admit, some of the stories we read in the Bible, at least at first glance, they're just weird. I mean, you come away from them and you wonder, what in the world is going on? That is the strangest thing. Now, it's not that we doubt the Bible. It's not that we question the Bible. It's just that when we look at some of these things, it's just weird. And so it is with the story we want to look at today. And it was really, I remember thinking how odd that it was. I never doubted it, never questioned it in the sense of not believing that it was an authentic story or a true story or anything like that. But it really was, really was odd for me to me for a long time. And we want to talk about that today, along with some other things. We want to talk about the um, idea of grace. We'll see about that a little bit more and what that might mean for us today and in these days. I want to take a glance back at history to an event that took place on February 7th, many years ago. Since we've been thinking about history, or I have been thinking about history, I thought that might be good to touch on that. And then I also want to give us a rationale for the argument in support of life. You know, we've come through January where there's often a, an emphasis on pro-life things, and, and that's good, but we shouldn't forget about it the rest of the time. And, and I wonder if, if too many of us, I count myself as one of them, really have a coherent, simple way to explain why we're pro-life. And so I came across one from a gentleman. I heard him interviewed, and I went out and bought his book, and he gave some really helpful tips, and I want to give you a little insight into a simple rationale for why we are pro-life, why I am pro-life, why I am against abortion. So where do we start? We've got a lot of things to do, a lot of things to cover. Why don't we start with grace? I think grace is always a good starting place. We sometimes think of grace as an excuse, and we will say things like, well, we live under grace, not under law, as though that somehow excuses our bad behavior or gives us permission to ignore the do's and don'ts that God says this is the way to live. Well, that's not grace at all, and we need to get over that sense. If we think that's grace, then we have really, really got a misunderstanding. We need to correct that. And, and I know that we use the word grace in a lot of ways. I mean, we use it as amazing grace. We use it as saving grace. There's a whole boatload of ways we use the concept, the word grace. And when we say grace, we often mean some little bit different kinds of things. But I want you to think about it in this way today and use the word grace in this specific way. Do you agree? Most Christians do, so I hope you will agree with me. Do you agree that as followers of Jesus, all that we are, in terms of the character we have, the insights into life that we have, the friendships that we have, all all the things that are characteristic of our lives are by grace. If I have been able to overcome some bad habit, it's by grace. If I have developed some good characteristic in my life, it's by grace. In fact, all that we are is by grace, and all that we want to become is by grace. Now, I know some of us say, and and I hope you do, there but by the grace of God go I. 
And we don't say that to diminish ourselves or demean ourselves or anything like that. We say that because we know it's true. If it had not been for the grace of God, we can hardly imagine where we might have ended up, where we might be today. And so it's perfectly fitting and appropriate for us to say, there but by the grace of God go I. So if we can agree, and I hope we can, that all that we are is by grace, God rescued us from being something else, so all that we are is by grace, then isn't it fair, isn't it true, doesn't it follow from that understanding that whatever we want to become is by grace? So what do I mean by that? Well, I mean, perhaps you struggle with a bad habit. Perhaps you struggle with a sin. Sometimes we refer to sins that we struggle with as besetting sins. You know, we just don't seem to know how to get over it. We keep falling into that same trap over and over. Perhaps you struggle with, well, you're just too quick to lash back when people say something. And you lash out at them and you quickly defend yourself or someone else and and you find out, even as you're saying these things sometimes, that why did I do that? Why did I say that? You know, we find ourselves saying things we, we re- wish we hadn't. And a lot of people have that trouble. Or maybe, maybe there's a person in your life that just pushes your buttons. You, you, you know what I mean. If you've got such a person, you know what I mean. This person just has a way of getting under your skin and irritating the daylights out of you. Sometimes we refer to those people as that sorry rascal. Well, I don't know who's sorrier or who's more rascal-like, that person or us, for letting them get to us. But anyway, suppose we think for a minute that, and you can identify for yourself something, now, if, if you struggle with this, maybe you don't, but something that you would like to, to improve about your response to life or your uh, attitude. Maybe it is a sin that you haven't been able to, to, to overcome, and you keep thinking, well, why do I keep falling into this trap over and over? Well, let's think about this from that place we started with grace. We said, I said, I hope we agreed that all that we are is by the grace of God. We couldn't be the people we are except by the grace of God. Well, if that's true, then we can't become the people we want to be except by the grace of God. So think about how to manage or how to deal with these struggles that we have. Think about them in terms of grace. What would it mean in our lives if God gave us grace to be different than we are? Dare I say better than we are? dare I say, less angry than we are, or irritable than we are, or uh, you fill in the blank. What if we begin to think about that in terms of grace to overcome that? Now, we talked about, and, and if you were here last week, you may remember, we talked about Isaiah, and it referred to at the end of Isaiah chapter 40, It referred to this idea that those who wait for the Lord's help find renewed strength. They rise up as if they had eagle's wings. They run without growing weary. They walk without getting tired. And in in many respects, what we're talking about is the lift 
that gives us life, the lift under the wings of our lives that help us soar and not be encumbered or grounded by the things that keep us down. We want to be able to fly. We want to have that lift that gives us life. Well, it says in here that those who wait for the Lord's help find renewed strength. And we did talk about wait doesn't mean just sit and do nothing and wait. No, it's just living with a confident expectation of God's help. Well, what if we think about putting ourselves in a place where we can live with confident expectation? Or sometimes I like to call it, and then you may have heard me call it, what if we put ourselves in the stream of grace? Now, what do I mean by that? Well, what I mean by that is we put ourselves in a position where we can have renewed strength, as though God, by his grace, becomes the lift under the wings of life. And so we can soar. So all those things that discourage us, get us down, all those things we do that we wish we didn't do, all those things we say that we just don't know why we said them, all of those things have a solution in grace. And what if we think about how do we apply grace to that problem? All of your discipline, all of your making up your mind you're not going to do that anymore has probably, well, how should I say, probably didn't work. Because if we change by grace, then applying all of our determination to do better doesn't solve the problem. Yeah, I, I want to hasten to say, yes, we have to make up our minds. We want to solve the problem. That's intentional. So we have to be intentional about it. But sometimes I think we forget that we have spiritual resources that can help us with this stuff. And that's what I mean by grace. I've mentioned it before, and maybe you remember it, maybe not. I, I find it helpful. I know it's not the summary definition of grace, but I have a definition of grace that I kind of think of as applied grace or grace for life that just helps me understand what grace is and how it works in the everyday in and out of life, the ups and downs, the overcomings of pitfalls, the way to press through difficulties. But I often say to people, remember that grace is the gift of God. Now, if you agreed with me earlier that all that we are is by grace, then you would agree that grace is the gift of God. And that's a good thing. So remember, grace is the gift of God that enables the people of God. So that means that grace as a gift helps us, you, me, all of God's people. It enables the people of God. So Grace is the gift of God that enables the people of God. Well, enables the people of God for what? That's the finish. Grace is the gift of God that enables the people of God to fulfill the will of God. And the will of God is for you to not be so short-tempered or have such a biting tongue or have that attitude or get irritated by whatever it is. You know, we all have our our challenges in life. But if we think about all that we are is by the grace of God, then all that we can become is by that grace. And so grace is the gift of God that enables the people of God to fulfill the will of God. 
So we need grace to get over these things. How do we get that grace? How do we find grace to put lift in our life? The way the the person in Isaiah, Isaiah the prophet, I wanted to say psalmist because it reads like a psalm. The way the psalm that Isaiah wrote talks about how we soar on wings like eagles. We rise up on wings like eagles. How do we do that? Well, we put ourselves in the stream of grace. Now, that's a fairly uh, new idea to a lot of us. I mean, it's not original with me. I, I saw it years ago, and it just clicked in my mind. What do I mean by putting ourselves in the stream of grace? Well, this is the intentional part of that. You've tried and tried and tried to get over whatever it is you're trying to get over. You, you've, you can agree with me or disagree with me, but I think I know that we're all in that same boat. We try and try to get over this stuff, and we realize we can't on our own. We need help, and that's what we need when we talk about grace. We need the help that grace provides. So how do you put yourself in a position where God can give you grace? This this thing that you can't put your hands on, that you can't grab and say, I want more of, but that God gives to us, how do we find a way, and, and the word, the kind of technical word we use is, how do we find a way for God to mediate that grace to us, or to give that grace to us, or to, uh, how, how do I say, um, fill us with that grace, uh, how, plug us into that grace. There's all kinds of ways to think about this, but how do we get ourselves in the stream of grace, where grace can reach us. Now, one of the common ways people think about it is when they go to church and the church serves the Lord's Supper or Holy Communion. Well, that is a means of grace. When we gather at the Lord's table, God has the opportunity because we reverence Him in those moments and the gift of grace personified in Jesus That is an opportunity for God to mediate grace to us, and he meets us there. He is present there with us. Now, he does that same mediation of grace, that same gift of grace in other words. That's in other ways. That's why you will hear me continue to say over and over, you need to find a church and go every week, at least every week. I think you also need to get involved in a Bible study and find a place to serve where you actually do something on purpose for the kingdom of God. But we won't go too far down that road today. We're going to talk about grace. You don't put yourself in the stream of grace by doing nothing. You put yourself in the stream of grace by doing the things that allow God to mediate grace to us. So going to church, gathering at the Lord's table, and the one I've most recently been trying to encourage people, both here at my church, and if I didn't tell you, I'm the pastor at Diplomat Wesleyan Church in Cape Coral, Florida. And we've talked about this recently. But we put ourselves in the stream of grace by reading the Bible. And I've been encouraging you, I've been encouraging our church, to take seriously this idea of setting aside time once, twice, three, four times, at least four times a week, to give focused attention to the Bible. Read the Bible, listen to it. If you just can't read, listen to it. Think about what God is saying to you and then respond to God based on what he has said to you and allow that to become another means of grace in your life. See, I'm convinced that we will find 
solutions to these problems of life. Sometimes we say victory over these things in our lives when we find our way to grace. And I want to encourage you to find your way to grace. Put yourself in the stream of grace because all that we are is by the grace of God and all that we hope to be is by the grace of God. Let me give you an example of someone who found the grace of God in a way that I hope none of us ever has to face. But it happened on February 7th, 1938. That's a long time ago. It happened in Germany. And it was during the time of the horrors of Hitler's Nazi movement. Happened a few years earlier that Hitler called in some church leaders to his office and he was a little concerned about how they were behaving and he wanted them to behave in the way he thought they should and the pastor should stay in their lane and not interfere with that. Well, there was a pastor named Martin Niemöller and he didn't agree with what Hitler said. And he said to Hitler, well, we in the church, we have a responsibility before God to, to care for the German people. And Hitler snapped at him, you confine yourself to the church, I'll take care of the German people. And Niemöller responded, you said that I will take care of the German people. But we too, as Christians and churchmen, have a responsibility toward the German people. That responsibility was entrusted to us by God, and neither you nor anyone in this world has the power to take it from us. End of quotation. Well, Hitler listened in silence as Pastor Niemöller made that statement. But that evening, the Gestapo, Hitler's Gestapo, raided Niemöller's house, and a few days later, bombed his church. During the months and years that followed, he was watched. Pastor Niemöller was watched closely by the secret police. And finally, in June of 1937, he preached these words, among others, in his church. Quote, We have no more thought of using our own powers to escape the arm of the authorities than had the apostles of old. We must obey God rather than man. End of quote. Shortly after he made that statement, he was arrested and placed in solitary confinement. A pastor trying to care for his people, standing up for God and for righteousness. Well, his trial began on February 7th, 1938. That morning, a green uniformed guard came down to his prison cell and escorted him through a series of underground passageways toward the courtroom. And the more they walked, the more the, the good pastor found himself becoming overwhelmed by terror and loneliness. What would happen? He did not know. What would happen to his church, his family? What tortures awaited them all, he did not know. The guard's face was impassive, silent as stone as they walked along. But they exited a tunnel and started up a final flight of stairs, and, and Pastor Niemöller heard a whisper. He didn't quite know what to think of it at first or where it came from. The voice was really soft. But then he realized that the officer who was accompanying him was whispering in his ear the words of Proverbs 18.10. The Lord is a mighty tower where his people can run for safety. In that moment, hearing the word of God from the lips of that silent, up till then, prison guard, the pastor's fear fell away. And the power of that verse sustained him through the trial and through the years that followed in a Nazi concentration camp. The Lord is a mighty tower where his people can run for safety. 
You know, I doubt if many of us, probably none of us, will face anything like what Pastor Niemöller and the people in Germany faced in those days. It's entirely possible that it could come that way to some of us. But Pastor Niemöller, in a way he never expected, found himself in the stream of grace that morning. And through the words of the the proverb spoken by the prison guard, he found courage. And we can find courage, too, when we look to God in the stream of grace. The Lord is a mighty tower where his people can run for safety. And I encourage you to run to the Lord. February 7th, 1938. That's many years ago, but a few days ago on our calendar. February 7th, 1938. Well, I see. I said we'd talk about grace, and we did quite a lot. I said we'd touch on an incident in history, and that was Pastor Niemöller. And, and let's finish up this portion of the program talking about this idea of, of being pro-life. Now, we've seen a lot of things happen in this country with the Supreme Court's opinion that was issued that really took the Supreme Court out of the arena of dealing with the whole issue of abortion and abortion rights, as they're called. I don't think that's the correct way to describe them. You will hear them talked about as abortion rights. And, and that's really uh, an attempt to change the subject so that you will think of it as a right, because we in America are big on our rights. But anytime you hear somebody talk about an abortion right, you need to think about that differently. And I want to give you this rationale for why we are pro-life, why we do not agree with abortion, and why we will never agree with abortion. It's really three simple statements two premises and one conclusion. I, it's not original with me. I got it from a gentleman I heard on a podcast and later got his book. But his first, first premise is this. It is wrong to intentionally kill an innocent human being. Well, I don't have any trouble with that. Of course it's wrong. None of us would, I hope, sanction the killing of an innocent human being. I mean, that wars take place and that's a, a horror and Occasionally, someone is put to death because of a heinous crime they've committed, and that too is a horror. But the premise here is not to get distracted by that. The premise is to say it is wrong to intentionally kill an innocent human being. And occasionally we hear about a murder taking place in in our communities. It's a terrible thing. And we all agree, I think, I think most people agree, it is wrong to intentionally kill an innocent human being. Second premise is this. Abortion intentionally kills an innocent human being. Well, that's pretty simple and straightforward, isn't it? Abortion kills an innocent human being. Well, it does. The whole point of abortion is to kill that baby. So, premise one, it is wrong to intentionally kill an innocent human being Premise two, abortion intentionally kills an innocent human being. Therefore, the conclusion, abortion is morally wrong. It's simply wrong because it kills an innocent human being. It's really not made more complicated than that. Now, we've seen a lot of things take place since the Supreme Court opinion was issued and since the battle to preserve the life of innocent babies has moved to the states. We've seen a lot of Terrible votes take place, and a lot of, a lot of people voting to keep abortion legal. 
Just because it's legal, by the way, doesn't mean it's moral. You know, we have to do right by what God says, not by what the law of the land says. And I think one of the problems that we've faced is that we haven't had clarity on what the issues really are. And there's been a lot of attempt to confuse people, a lot of attempt to obfuscate the obvious. It's happening in Florida because in Florida there are some people who have made a very serious attempt to put an abortion statement on the ballot to enshrine it in the Florida Constitution. A lot of, a lot of concerns about that, a lot of problems with that statement. I don't know if it's going to make it to the ballot. I know they have enough signatures to get it on the ballot, but the Supreme Court in Florida has to rule that it's appropriately worded. And there's a lot of concern that they, that they might say that it is. There's a lot of confidence that they will say, no, this isn't appropriate, and they will strike down the potential amendment. But really, no matter where all that goes in our states, no matter what the law says, we live by what God says. And that's what we need to think about and focus on. Now, if you've been confused by it, then just simply ask God to help you be unconfused because the people that want to have abortion in this country trade in confusion and misunderstanding and trying to make you think it's one thing when it's not when it's really another. And that's really what they're doing is changing the subject. And it happens in all kinds of ways. And you can probably think of those. But I want you to always remember as you consider it, and maybe you're, maybe you're struggling with, with this whole idea of whether it's right or wrong. I just want you to think about, do you agree that it's wrong to intentionally kill an innocent human being? Do you agree with that? If you agree with that, then the next question is, do you agree that abortion intentionally kills an innocent human being? Do you agree with that? Now, there's all kinds of distractions that will come up and people will say, well, but it's, but it's not a fully developed human being. That's not the point. The point is, does it kill an innocent human being? Is it human? Is he, is she, is the baby human? Abortion intentionally kills an innocent human being. I don't think you can get away from it being human. Where else, what else could it be? And so if you agree that it's wrong to kill an innocent human being, and if you agree that abortion intentionally kills an innocent human being, no abortionist ever intended for the baby to survive, then you have to conclude that abortion is morally wrong. And I want to encourage you to think that through carefully. Not be distracted. There's a whole lot of things people will talk about. There's a whole lot of ways they'll try to talk you into agreeing with them, and a whole lot of emotion-based arguments, and a whole lot of illogical arguments. But I want you to always come back to this this idea. It's wrong to intentionally kill an innocent human being. Secondly, abortion intentionally kills an innocent human being. And finally, because of that, because those two statements are true, abortion is morally wrong. All right, so now we've gotten three-fourths of the way of the things that I thought we'd talk about today. We said we'd talk about a weird Bible story, and we'll get to that in just a minute. We talked about history and, and Pastor Niemöller and his finding himself in the stream of grace just when he needed it. We talked about how we can put ourselves in the stream of grace and find lift in our life where things that have been dragging us down suddenly no longer drag us down because we put ourselves in the stream of grace and we cooperate with God's grace in our lives, and that makes all the difference. And we talked about a simple rationale for defending human life. 
all of those are true. Now, let's go back to that weird story that I talked about a little bit. Let me give you a little introduction to that before we have to take a break in just a moment. The weird story is, is what we usually refer to by a rather unusual word that we don't use for very many things, but we refer to the story as the transfiguration of Jesus. And we're going to look at that from Mark chapter 9, the transfiguration of Jesus, where Jesus was really changed completely as, as three eyewitnesses watched and as two people joined him that came from somewhere but not the earth. I mean, it is a remarkable story of Jesus going with his guys, Peter, James, and John, up the mountain, and right before their eyes, Jesus is suddenly different, and right before their eyes, he is joined by Elijah and Moses. And you might be saying with me, that is one unusual story. Well, it is, and we're going to read the story, and we're going to talk about what it means, but one of the interesting things, and you'll see this when we talk about it, is that the more we understand the Bible, the more these, at first, weird stories make sense, because there are so many parallels to what happened in what we call the Old Testament that help us understand this admittedly unusual story in the New Testament. And so we're going to take a look at some of those. It connects with the prophet Elijah, it connects with Moses, the lawgiver who led Israel out of Egypt. It connects with God's appearance at Mount Sinai. It connects with Jesus and his arrival and what he was coming to do, and how this points to the fulfillment of all that God promised in the Old Testament. So it may be a weird story, and I have always thought it was, but it's really understandable, and it makes a whole lot of sense once we connect the dots, which is why the Old Testament matters. And that's another subject for another time. But we have to take a break, so I hope you'll stay with us. I'm Pastor Rick. Who's got time for a nasal invasion messing up your lifestyle? Crush those nasties before they become a problem. For a limited time, when you add the new Cofix RX throat spray to your order with the coupon code OUTLOUD, you'll receive 20% off the entire purchase. Go to americaoutloud.shop. That's americaoutloud.shop and use coupon code OUTLOUD. Use Cofix RX because it works. World-class care from doctors you can trust, all from the comfort of your home. That is One Wellness. Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company launched the One Wellness membership to provide free monthly supplements and unlimited telemedicine access with doctors that share your values. Be a part of a revolutionary new healthcare system that puts your health and well-being above the interests of Big Pharma's bottom line. It's the way healthcare should be. Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first month of One Wellness. ASEA believes that inside each of us is the potential to feel our very best. Our customers will tell you how our products have made a difference for them. From improving immune health and supporting gut health, to reducing the appearance of wrinkles, and even improving mind, mood, and energy. Make our breakthrough products an essential step in fulfilling your greatest potential. ASEA, we power potential. For exclusive savings, use code OUTLOUD to save 15% off your first order today. Spike proteins help viruses enter into your cells, disrupting your health and your well-being. Global Healing's Foreign Protein Cleanse detoxes your body of spike proteins, which allows your body to repair from within, supporting your immune and respiratory systems 
and regulating your inflammatory response. Formulated by Dr. Edward Group and by Dr. Brian Artis, Foreign Protein Cleanse targets and detoxes spike proteins in the body. Go to americaoutloud.shop and get 15% off using the code OUTLOUD. Global healing, giving you the power to take control of your health naturally. You wouldn't go a day without brushing your teeth or washing your hands. What about washing your nose? I mean, your nose does filter the air you breathe, air loaded with bacteria, viruses, and irritants. Make nasal hygiene part of your routine with Clear. No messy bottles to fill, no drowning sensation. Clear is a natural drug-free saline with the added benefit of xylitol, which blocks bacterial and viral adhesion. Available in stores and online at clear.com. That is X-L-E-A-R.com. Expert opinions, honest debate, and in-depth investigations are what you've come to expect from AmericaOutloud.news. We don't shy away from speaking the truth boldly and plainly. All that's missing is the propaganda that has infected legacy and social media. Get the best of down and dirty, wholesome American speak. Now is our time, my fellow Americans. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Liberty and justice for all. We are back. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and I'm the pastor at Diplomat Wesleyan Church in Cape Coral, Florida. Real church with real people, where we struggle with all the real stuff everybody else does. But we find that God is with us, and he helps us, especially when we intentionally put ourselves in the stream of grace. Well, we're not going to go back over that, but I don't want to get away from reminding us that that matters a great deal. But I said we'd look at this, what I said was admittedly, at first glance anyway, a bit of a weird story from the Bible. And we call it the transfiguration of Jesus. Fancy word for Jesus was changed right before their eyes in a way they could not have imagined. And probably we could not either, except that we read it in the Bible and we know what happened. So I want to start by reading from Mark chapter 9 the story of the transfiguration. Now, in some respects, the story starts in verse 2, but we're going to read verse 1 because it connects some dots for us, and we'll finish up with verse 13. I'm reading today from the New English Translation of the Bible. I like to switch up my translations because it helps me look at the Scriptures with fresh eyes. Some people just don't like to do that. If that's you, don't worry about it, but I like to. So, here we go. Chapter 9, verse 1 from Mark. And he said to them, Jesus speaking, I tell you the truth, there are some standing here who will not experience death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. And that's important. We're going to get back to that. Now to verse 2 and the transfiguration story. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them alone up a high mountain privately. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiantly white, more so than any launderer in the world could bleach them. Then Elijah appeared before them along with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. So Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For they were afraid, and he did not know what to say. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came from the cloud, This is my one dear son. Listen to him. 
Suddenly, when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore except Jesus. As they were coming down from the mountain, he gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until after the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept his statement to themselves, discussing what this rising from the dead meant. Then they asked him, Why do the experts in the law say that Elijah must come first? He said to them, Elijah does indeed come first and restores all things. And why is it written that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be despised? But I tell you that Elijah has certainly come, and they did to him whatever they wanted, just as it is written about him. So it's really quite an interesting story, and we're not going to get to all of it, but we're going to get to some of it, enough of it to make sense of this idea of transfiguration. And indeed, Jesus was changed before their eyes so that, it doesn't say this, but it's as though he glowed. It was it was a change in him that could not be explained physically. And so we're going to look at several things and, and, and identify or think about what's going on here uh, through various um, lenses, shall we say. First of all, there are some things that, that help us connect this idea of transfiguration to Sinai. So I think we need to make sure we think about that. One of the things is in verse 2, refers to a, a trip of six days, that they, they went six days uh, along with Jesus. Six days later, it says. Well, that connects and gives us some, some clues as to what's going on, and it's unusually precise in the Gospel of Mark. Well, it points to, to the interesting thing of, of Moses and his six days of preparation before meeting God at Sinai. And we read in the scriptures that they prepared for six days. Moses prepared for six days before he met God at Sinai. Remember, they came out of Egypt, crossed the Red Sea, ended up at Sinai where God met them and began to show them what it would be like for them to get along with him going forward and on the way to the promised land. A lot more to the story, but that's a cut-down version of it. So that's six days parallels to, to that. It's also interesting that we all understand that trad- Jewish tradition saw Moses ascend to Sinai, and he went up the mountain. Well, that's a, a key thing that happened in the story of the Transfiguration. Jesus went up. And, and as, the, as they viewed it, they saw Moses going up to Sinai as a kind of royal enthronement. Moses was never declared king, but the early readers would have made some connection between Jesus going up and Moses going up, because there was Moses up there with them. And it's really one of those signposts that points us in the right direction. The height of the mountain implies contact with heaven. They, they go up, and this was a common theme in, in their way of thinking, and in those days, you go up to meet God. And so we get this six days and these signposts of, of pre- preparation of Moses being viewed as a king and of Jesus now being viewed as a king. And all these things are kind of dynamic and fitting together. We have the height of the mountain implying contact with heaven. And sometimes people today will even talk about certain geographical locations that are, that are, um, closer to heaven, shall we say. They talk about them as thin places where you can meet God in a powerful way. Well, so those are some beginning ideas of what went on there, but there are some really specific parallels of Jesus going up there, and let's make sure we don't miss those. Jesus took Peter, James, and John up a high mountain in the same way that Moses went up with three men and 70 elders. So it was Moses and some others, it was Jesus and three. And Mark 
Chapter 9, verse 2, Jesus was changed. His clothes became radiantly white in a way that nobody could do that. And in the same way, Moses, we read in Exodus, his skin became so bright that people couldn't even look at him. After he'd been with God, he, he, he had to cover his face because it was so bright. So there's another parallel between the two. Helps us understand what's going on here. In Mark 9, verse 7, God appears in a cloud and a voice speaks. Well, God appeared in a cloud and spoke to Moses at Sinai. So there's another parallel with that. Jesus came down from, uh, from the high mountain that's described. We don't know exactly which high mountain it was, but he came down from the mountain and people were astonished. In the same way, when Moses came down and they saw his face glowing, they were afraid. So there's a quite remarkable reaction by the people that, that had gone on here. And, and so we, we begin to get an idea that there are parallels between what happened in the Old Testament, particularly at Sinai, and what happened here in the New Testament when Jesus took these guys up a high mountain. And so we need to explore that a little bit, and we want to think about that through this idea, through what, what they saw, and then we want to, we want to talk about um, what they heard and, and what they thought. So we're connecting the dots, and we're start, starting to understand, based upon what happened in the New Testament, informed by what God had done before, that gives us clues of what to think about. So let's talk about what they saw. Well, they went up the mountain, and they saw that Jesus' clothes became dazzling white. Dazzling white. Now, the implication here is that it's, or, or it's clearly stated, not the implication, that's, that's not, not the way to think about it. It's clearly stated that it was a change that no earthly uh, known, uh, how should I say, um, no, no known mechanism could make it this way. They were just dazzling white, and it's as though they glowed. It doesn't say they glowed. But that's, this says radiant, so I guess in that sense maybe glowed. But Jesus' clothes became dazzling white. And, and people have talked about that and what that meant. And, and, and I thought it was interesting. One, one person suggested this, that Jesus' nature was not changed, but rather he had become unveiled before their eyes. Suddenly they could see Jesus as he really was. They hadn't been before because he took on human form. And so this is the idea that, that now Jesus is being shown to them as the God of love and power and how he was the supreme one and everything was changed because of Jesus. And another, another writer said that uh, Jesus was transformed in the way that, that words are transformed when they're sung. A song is more than music and words, but when you put the words and the music together, it changes everything. And so Jesus here was changed in a powerful way. It's also, another person said, made another connection to an Old Testament depiction of Jesus as, as the Ancient of Days from Daniel chapter 7, where he was described as, as his clothing as white as snow and the hair of his head was like pure wool. And of course, there's also a similar description in Revelation chapter 1. So they saw Jesus in a whole new way, I think it's fair to say he was revealed to them in the way he really was. And when he came to earth, he put aside some of that, but now they get a glimpse of it. Peter, James, and John get a glimpse of Jesus as he really is. Well, they also saw Elijah and Moses. And this represents to, the, to them the law and the prophets. Moses being law, Elijah being prophets. 
Well, there are some parallels to, to these guys. Both Elijah and Moses met God and heard God's voice on Sinai. Now, Moses, you probably are familiar with the story of the Ten Commandments. When Moses went up to meet with God, that's what he did. He, he met God and he heard God speak there on the mountain with the Ten Commandments and the giving of the law. Elijah had a similar experience, but not related to law giving. But Elijah ran for his life when he ran away from Ahab, when Ahab threatened to kill him because Elijah had demonstrated that God was more powerful than Ahab's God. And so he ran for his life and he ran to Sinai. Usually if you look in the scriptures and you read about Elijah, it says he goes to Horeb. That's the same place, different word. And so Elijah there heard from God. God met him there. You can read that story. So uh, there's a parallel there with Elijah and Moses. And, and of course, there's another really interesting parallel of what they saw related to Elijah and Moses is that not everybody agrees on this. And, and so I wouldn't want you to, to, to not be aware of that. But there is a tradition that asserts that neither Elijah or Moses died. Now, we know for sure from the story of Elijah that he was taken up to heaven in a chariot of fire. You can read that very clearly, the story of Elijah and then Elisha being left behind and seeing Elijah taken up in a chariot of fire. So we know he was what we refer to as translated to heaven. He did not die. Some people believe, and, and there was a Jewish tradition at this time, the time of Jesus, that believed that Moses, too, was taken up to heaven. Now, it's based upon the scriptures saying that they couldn't find a grave for Moses, and so the tra tradition was that God just took him. Now, I, I don't think you can prove that one way or the other, and, and there are people who will say, yes, he died. There will be other people who say, no, he didn't. The point is not to make a definitive statement one way or the other here. The point is to, to help us realize that during this time, Jewish tradition believed Moses had been taken to heaven. And so to see Moses there with Jesus was a powerful connection for these people. And it would connect them to the reality one day, not too far in the distant future, when Jesus would die and come back to life. And where Jesus ultimately defeated death and so it became a true sign of the kingdom of God. And they would then remember, because Jesus told them, don't tell anybody until after resurrection. That's an important, important thing. We should not forget that. We don't want to overlook that. So whether you come down on the side of Moses didn't die or whether you come down on the side that he did, the important thing is to understand in their context, whether rightly or wrongly, there was a tradition that believed Moses had not known death either. And now Jesus would be able to overcome even death because here was Moses and Elijah right there alive in, in, in front of them. Well, there's another real interesting aspect of what happened there on that, on that mountain when Jesus took them up there. It happened on Sinai as well. There was a cloud that came down and it represented what we sometimes refer to and accurately refer to as the Shekinah glory of God. Now, what that means is Shekinah is a word that's used to refer to the manifestation of God's presence. So the cloud came down, and it was more than just a, an amazing cloud. It was a cloud that manifest God's presence. So God's presence was there with them, and they saw that cloud. And all of a sudden, it went away after he had spoken to them, God had spoken to them. But the, the real important thing is to to recognize that God was present 
and he was there with them. And Jesus remained, and he was the one that mattered. And Jesus was not Elijah, and he was not Moses. He was more than that, because they saw him, and they heard what God said. Now, what God said was, this is my one dear son, listen to him. Now, if you remember, and you connect more dots, and this is where I say we can connect these things, these stories make a lot of sense, even though they strike us as kind of strange. They make a lot of sense when we connect the dots. Well, the, the idea of, of a voice from heaven connects us to the baptism of Jesus. If you go back to Mark chapter 1, and God spoke as Jesus came up out of being baptized, and God spoke to Jesus. And many commentators, most I would think, I haven't done that extensive a survey, but I've seen it so much that I, that I come to, to think that most of them say that, that that voice was spoken to Jesus. And it was for Jesus to hear. We as readers get to, get to be aware of it, but we're not sure the people there heard that voice. They might have, but for us now, as Mark tells the story, this is where the connection is made that... God speaks about Jesus at baptism, and now God speaks so we can all hear it here at the Transfiguration. And he says, this is my one dear son, listen to him. And it's, and it's a command to listen and to, and to pay attention to Jesus. And of course, if, that, if God says to do something, then failure to do it is a sin. And that's an important understanding. It's also important to, to realize this, that here's God speaking after they saw Moses and Elijah there with Jesus, Jesus profoundly changed and revealed to them. And now God speaks and says, listen to him. He's my son. Jesus now becomes the ultimate spokesperson for God. And that would have been a powerful statement to those people because now they really needed to hear what Jesus said. That was important. It's also, and, and we need to make this point again, and then I probably will circle back to it, but it also points out that that it, with all of the talk that we had in chapter 8, and we haven't talked about that yet, but in chapter 8, it's where Jesus first tells his disciples in the, in the Gospel of Mark that he's going to suffer and die. And you probably remember, you may remember, that Peter didn't like that idea and called Jesus out on it and said, what are you talking about? You can't talk this way. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. Jesus said, this is the way it's going to be. And so now, by contrast to that, God is saying, listen to Jesus. And Jesus' talk of rejection and death had to be factored in. And yet at the same time, he's still God's son. And so they needed to listen and pay attention to what's going on to get the whole story, not just some of the story. Very important for that. Now, it's also important to notice that another thing they heard while they were they heard a lot of things, particularly God's voice. That was particularly significant. But they also heard Jesus say to them to keep the, re the um, transfiguration secret until after resurrection. And there were a number of times, one person counted them as nine times, that Jesus told people in the Gospel of Mark to be quiet about who he was so that, so that he didn't get ahead of himself. His mission didn't get interrupted. Usually it's considered that if they had told that it would have messed up what Jesus was about. But here's the only time that Jesus said, don't tell anyone until, and he told them a specific time when they could. After resurrection, they could tell them. And so they begin to, to, to put all this together, and 
and begin to try to make sense out of it, as do we, and, and what might they have been thinking? Well, some of it we can, we can be pretty confident of because we understand the, what the Bible says. We understand something about the times. I wouldn't say we understand everything about that, but it's, it's absolutely insightful for us because, after all, this message of Mark is for us. We understand it in light of what they would have thought because it helps us think through, but ultimately it's for us. And one of the things they clearly would have been thinking about was the end of time because Elijah represented the end of time. And that's clear from their conversation. We think about the, the end of the world or the end of time or the day of the Lord. Well, they would have been thinking about that too. It's also they would have been thinking about it in terms of the coming of the prophet like Moses because that was predicted in the scriptures. So they would have thought, hmm, here's Elijah and Moses both pointing to the end of time. And so he, these, these two expectations that were alive in the thinking of, of faithful Jewish people in that day, faithful people of God, the coming of the prophet at the end of time, like Moses, and the appearing of Elijah, dawning at what they would have thought was the end of the time, helped all of them realize that the history of what God had been doing was coming to fulfillment. And the hope that that would have brought to them would have been something that we're probably not real familiar with, but it was glorious for them to consider. Because now God was helping them connect that he was fulfilling his promises in the coming of Jesus. And so they would not have to wonder what was going on. They would have confidence that God was helping them. And they were processing all of that and trying to come to some some really faithful conclusions about this whole story. Now, one of the things that we should circle back to, and that I said we would, is this idea that was presented in verse 1 of, of Mark chapter 9. And it said there that Jesus is speaking, and he says, I tell you the truth, there are some standing here who will not experience death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. Now, a lot of people have wondered about that, and there are a number of potential explanations for what that means. The one that I think makes the most sense is the one in context. And it was a very difficult scene in chapter 8. And we didn't read that, but you can go look at it. It's essentially Jesus getting his disciples together and saying to them that I'm going to, go, to suffer and to die. And he pretty well says it straight up to them. You know, they identify him as the Messiah. And then he says, I'm going to have to suffer and die. Now, that, that would have been a huge disconnect for them because they could not fathom the idea of, of the Messiah that they were expecting to die. And, and so one of the things that when Jesus makes this statement, it becomes a connection between the hard reality they had to begin to deal with, that Messiah would suffer and die, and the, rea- and the other glorious reality that Jesus overcame even death, and the parents of Elijah and Moses point that out, and that just because he was going to die, his glory was undiminished they would have thought that was a horror in the end of things. And we read that from the story of Jesus when he died. But Jesus is even now trying to say to them, no, the the point of the transfiguration is, yes, I have to die, but that's not the end. There is a glorious end coming. This is not the end. So we, we gather that from that connection between Mark chapter 9, verse 1, and Mark chapter 8, 
and then the story of the transfiguration. So that also reminds us that our understanding and appreciation of Jesus goes beyond what he can do for us. It's so much more than, oh, good, God will do this for me or for my family or for somebody I care about. God's work in the world is transcendent and remarkable. And that means that we can have faith. We can have absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And that's what faith is. Absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And here we have it because of transfiguration. An admittedly weird story that makes a lot of sense and no longer is weird because we have absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God and He will lift us to life. I'm Pastor Rick. Thank you.